So let's continue on in our study of God's Word. Uh, we began looking last week in the fourth chapter of First Peter at some issues related to suffering. And I'm going to pick up the reading again today in verse 12 of First Peter 4. We're particularly going to be looking at verses 14 to 16 today, but I'm going to start the reading in verse 12 of First Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who has spoken, that you loved us enough to speak and superintend what you said in a way to get it down so that we have a chance to study it. And beyond that, that part of the ministry of your Holy Spirit is to illumine our hearts. And so, Lord, in this day, as we look at what you superintended and made available to us, would you carry out that teaching ministry as well within each of our hearts? We know that ministry can alter between being encouraging and challenging, but, Lord, we want it to be real, so would you do those works in us? And we'll thank you ahead of time, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Real quickly, last week we began to look at this section. We were talking about suffering and trials and how that's a theme throughout the whole book of 1 Peter. And I was reading verses to you out of chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and actually into chapter 4 at the beginning of it that reminded us that suffering is in point of fact, for lack of a better way to describe it, a common denominator for believers. Uh, It's not something abnormal. It is part and parcel of what it means to live in this fallen world. And we began to look at some of the principles that come to us in these verses about suffering. We began last time by looking at that issue of don't be surprised at the fiery trials that come. Uh, Because suffering is inevitable for us in this world. 2 Timothy 3 tells us all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Uh, Suffering comes. Fiery trials come. And it only makes sense when you realize, though redeemed, God has left us here in a fallen world. He has left us with a struggle with fallen bodies, physical bodies. And he has left us in a battlefield with a personal enemy of our souls, Satan. So, given the fact it's a fallen world, fallen bodies, uh, battlefield, why wouldn't we be encountering trials? (laughs) How could you not be when that's the case? And so God says, listen, nothing, nothing unusual is happening here. And trials are more than just stubbing your toe. Uh, Trials can be very fiery things, too. And God says, listen, don't be surprised at it. If you're going to be surprised at anything, be surprised that you got through a week without one of those fiery trials. Because how'd you do that 
in the midst of a battlefield. That's, that was what ought to bewilder us as believers. We also saw last time, in verse 13, he said that we were called to rejoice when we end up suffering for the kingdom. Not all sufferings tied to the kingdom, but when we have a chance to suffer tied to the kingdom, God says that's a cause for rejoicing. Because in a way it helps us as it puts it to share in the sufferings of Christ. In the word share is that Greek word koinonia which means a joint participation in life. A uh, word that describes marriage, but also translated partnership, fellowship, at different places in the New Testament. But the Greeks used it particularly to describe marriage, where ideally two people now are jointly facing life, you know, participating in life together. And God says we get to share with Christ in a special way. We come to understand what it means to face life together, when we happen to be in a circumstance where we need strength beyond our own. And God says, when we read suffering in the kingdom sense, we will discover a sense of Christ's presence with us and an enablement from Christ that's discoverable no other way. Because it's not needed any other time. It's there in the midst of hard times that we discover that intimacy with him. Real quickly, I also said that sharing in Christ's sufferings doesn't mean we somehow add something to the cross. This isn't about atonement. This is about identification. It is linked to our ambassador role for that very Savior of our soul, that we suffer sometimes so that we might give light and show his truth out in the midst of a world that's suffering around us. It's not that we're adding anything to the cross well, today, picking it up, continuing to move forward in our study, verses 14 to 16 introduce us to two more principles about suffering. Verse 14 says, If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you'll be blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. When you suffer insults for the name of Christ, see it as a form of blessing. That's the principle. Now, here's the fact of the matter. All believers who are not trying to operate as secret agents, so there's no evidence that that's what they are, but all believers will sometimes be insulted for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If I was to hold a seminar for you, that would that title of which would be to how to prevent being insulted for the name of Christ, the seminar would be over in one second because you get together and I'd say, no way, and then you go. Actually, there is a way. Don't live for him. You know, that cuts down a lot of suffering right there and a lot of insult. But basically, God says, no, no, all believers will be insulted. A note of realism, and I love the realism of the scriptures, a note of realism for us. It says, hey, let's be realistic about things. We already saw earlier in the fourth chapter the comment that the world around us finds us puzzling. It can't make sense out of us as believers. We don't fit any of the categories that they're used to. And they find us puzzling. They find us irritating. And back in uh, verse 4, we saw they often malign us as a result. With respect to this, it says, we were they are surprised you don't join with them in the flood of debauchery, which is the characteristic of their life, and they malign you. We already saw that's the dynamic in the midst of the fallen world in which we find ourselves. Now we're discovering a particular type of maligning. All right? God is saying, sometimes 
the response of a puzzled and antagonistic world can take the form of insults, insulted for the name of Christ. This word insult translates a Greek word which means to mock, to defame. Uh, Sometimes we're defamed and mocked for Christ, for the faith that we hold. And these insults can take a lot of different forms for us. Sometimes it'll take the form of somebody that you care about looking at you and accusing you of being weak, a failure, just looking for a crutch in your life. Ever happened to anybody? That's an insult. But it's a form of the Greek word translated insulted here. Sometimes people will look at you and they'll accuse you of being bigoted and narrow and full of hate speech because you're holding to God's truth in a culture that increasingly rejects not just the idea that God speaks, but rejects everything that supposedly God had said related to morality, related to ethics. And so they'll look at you and accuse you, insult you as being a hate monger. Bigoted. Narrow. Sometimes they accuse you of committing intellectual suicide. They may not always use that phrase, although I encountered that often in my university world as I was part of that. It's like intellectual suicide. How could you how could you buy into these worldviews? How could you know you're sharp? How come you don't you know we can encounter insults in those forms where people think, why'd you turn off your brain? Because you would have had to turn off your brain to be a believer. And, of course, those are opportunities as well. (laughs) But it's an insult nonetheless, isn't it, to encounter that? Sometimes they'll insult you by just saying, I don't quite know what to say, except I want to discredit you in the eyes of everybody else. And so I'm going to say whatever I have to say to discredit you, to... Uh, make people around you ostracize you, kind of put you at arm's length. It'll be clear you're not welcome, and certainly you're not accepted by us. Insults. I'm glad the Greek word translated insult has such a broad range to it, and I haven't exhausted it, but I'm just helping you see. It's more than somebody forming a formal insult. You know, that's not what's being talked about here. It's an attitude in the way that they respond to us. And God says, listen... All of us are going to be insulted for following our Savior. Going to be insulted for it. Uh, There's no strategy, by the way, no strategy of outreach in this world that will make a world that finds us puzzling and irritating and is committed to maligning us and insulting us. You don't have a strategy that will get that sort of group to like us. If we sat down and tried to have an outreach strategy for the church and say, how can we reach out to these people without doing anything that would put us in a situation where they might want to insult us or insult our message? And my response to you is don't meet. I mean, there is no way to do that short of compromise. Then in which case, you shouldn't have met anyway. You don't need any help to compromise because the world rejects the message and more resents the message. There is nothing more resented than for somebody to believe they're not acceptable to God based as they are. 
Because everybody's image of themselves is such that, well, I don't know how bad other people are, but God couldn't possibly not accept me. Uh, And God says, well, I don't accept anybody. You're all sinners and separated, all facing death and judgment. That's insulting at the deepest level in a culture where people from their earliest years are told, well, you're basically good inside. You know, and any time the good's not seen, it's usually environmental. You know, even under pressures, you're raised in a bad situation. Uh, They persecute you at work. And, you know, if only you were in a good place. And you say, well, there's no example in history where there's been any good place that people haven't shown all the degeneration of sin. And they say, well, I know, but but that's why we're working for a better world. You know, I'm thinking, well, good luck. You know, the, the sin follows you no matter where you go. Uh, it, it won't, it'll show up. The world rejects and resents our message. But God says here, listen, that's going to happen. But this maligning with insults, which is part of the characteristic of what it means to live for Christ actually leads to blessing. And the Greek word blessing here is makarios, which means inner happiness, an inner contented satisfaction. Blessing, as First Peter's talking about it, is a feeling inside of that satisfaction, inner happiness, that enables us, it compensates for the fact that on the outside, what we're getting is bad-mouthing. All right? That's how God places it here. That's the structure. He says, I'll do something that will compensate for what you can't escape if you're seeking to live for me. Now, how is that possible? How, in the face of insults, how could makarios be our experience? Uh, it seems contrary to logic. Uh, It seems contrary to experience, sadly, in many cases. So let's unfold it a little bit. Let's unfold the paradox. First thing we have to admit is to experience Makarios' blessing when we're being insulted is definitely not going to happen naturally. I mean, who naturally can feel good even when being insulted? And it doesn't matter how many times they repeat that old uh, kid's line of, oh, sticks and stones may break my bones, worms will never hurt me. They know it hurts them. I mean, uh, uh, come on. You can't talk yourself out of it. Words hurt. Devastating. Uh, And so it's not natural. (laughs) Now, after we admit that, it pushes us in the right direction because we come before the Lord and say, well, this can't naturally happen. I can't work myself up in self-discipline to get to the point where I have makarios when people are insulting me. God says it won't happen because it's not natural. Therefore, if it's going to happen, it has to be supernatural. By definition. Either that or he turns us into psychotics where we don't respond to life reasonably any longer. You know? uh, no, he doesn't do that. But it has to be Supernatural. Only God can make this happen in a person. And he works a miracle through the indwelling Holy Spirit to cause it to happen. That's why it says, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's why it works. Uh, Not because it's natural, but because the Holy Spirit does something unnatural in us. 
by giving us an ability to respond in the face of insults differently than the natural person is able to respond to such insult. We have special grace and enablement because of the Holy Spirit, and we're not going to find it anywhere else. And so if you're not living in a way surrendered and enabled by the Holy Spirit, you're not going to find the makarios either. So insulting is one way on the path to makarios. It has to be combined with surrender and enablement by the Spirit in order to get to the equal sign, uh, the equal sign of makarios, of blessing. The second thing in this unfolding of it, we need to understand that the very experience of facing insults, that experience itself, creates a situation in which we find a wonderful proof of Christ's presence in our life and walk. We already talked about the fact that in bad circumstances we can get a sense of koinonia and a sense of his presence. But God's picking up on a particular kind of bad circumstance here, and that's the circumstance where people that maybe we care about are insulting us because of following Christ, ridiculing us. Uh, And he says, in that circumstance, you're going to find a wonderful proof of Christ's presence in your life. He lives his life in us and through us through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. When I'm insulted, filled with his Spirit... I find an inner affirmation and strength from the Holy Spirit. And it helps to offset the very real hurt and sense of rejection that I'm getting from the people who are insulting me. That's what that means. It's an inner proof. An inner proof that I wouldn't discover if I wasn't being insulted. Because it's being insulted that creates the condition for the inner proof. Much like... If I wasn't under trial, I wouldn't understand the koinonia with Christ. But being in the trial, I discover a sense of Christ's presence and enablement. Do you follow the line of reasoning? So now he goes to a specific case of suffering, and he says, insults. A special grace in inner proof. And God says, take joy when you find such inner proofs. Take joy in it. It's like, oh. Lord, you did something in me. I had something to hold on to when I didn't have anything to hold on to. The other thing I think we need to understand here is we need to remind ourselves in the face of this promise that facing insults puts us in good company. What I mean by that, listen to the way this is put in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you, meaning insult you, and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And we could, of course, turn to Hebrews 11 and then the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12 and say all of those people of faith, like a great cloud of witnesses, We're in good company, brothers and sisters. Everybody who should matter to us has been insulted too. It's it's not like I got a raw deal here. Everybody did. And so I I say, okay, God's saying, listen, they, they got it. You're getting it. They received what I can do to help you in it. So will you. 
find solidarity. We use that word in a non-Marxist context. <laughs> find solidarity with others because that's one of our solidarity realities. Finding something in the midst of the tough things. The, the other irony I see here is that uh, when I face insults for Christ, which is a form of being dishonored in this world, clearly, God says, I actually find honor before the Lord. Honor in the face of dishonor. Uh, when the world refuses to treat me in a dignified way, because of my faith, I'm finding dignity from the Lord and confidence. I was thinking about the picture that we get in Acts chapter 5 as early in the expansion of the church. Great persecution was rising. And in verse 40 of chapter 5 of the book of Acts, it says, and the apostles now, it says, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them, publicly beat them, charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Verse 41, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. There's the principle. God says, let's be like the others that we're in solidarity with. Let's rejoice that... We were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the Lord Jesus. Because that's a grace from God. You say, well, I like some of his other graces better. Well, yeah. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, that's the promise to us. <laughs> what is a dishonor is a form of honor for the one growing in the Lord. I have a ways to go on these things, you know, admission time. Uh, uh, I'm not sure when I got out of a public beating that my first response would be to rejoice in the Lord that I was counted worthy to suffer for the name of the Lord. I pray that could happen, you know, but uh, so I got ways to go, as all of us do in these things. But God is laying it out for us. He says, here's the principle. Here, here's the perspective. You can't escape suffering. And if you're living for me, you can escape insults, but all's not lost. All is not lost. Been insulted lately for your faith? It's a rare thing when we haven't been. For some people, it's a daily experience being insulted for their faith. Verse 15 goes on and gives us another principle. It says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. We need to accept the truth that sometimes we actually deserve to suffer, and not because we're living for Christ. Not all suffering comes because of our position as a believer. And so he's quickly adding this little proviso here for us and saying, now wait a second, I'm not talking about all forms of suffering. If you brought suffering on yourself, 
This isn't going to be a place where you discover Koinonia with Jesus. This isn't going to be a place where you discover Makarios because I'm supernaturally working and giving you this special sense of my presence. Uh, Not all suffering has that outcome. Suffering that's tied to our failure in sin is a different story. Once again, notes of realism that God gives us. Uh, Sometimes you and I suffer because of our own sin choices. We bring it on ourselves. I know this is only theoretical for most of us, but this could happen. All right, so God's trying to cover that possibility. And he says, you could have brought this thing on yourself. Uh, It's a very sad truth. But my suspicion is everyone's biography might reveal a couple times where this is the case. Uh, It's one of these things where it's probably not useful to have a show of hands. But uh, nonetheless, I think possible, possible. Uh, One of the theologians said, deserved suffering, sadly, is also a common denominator of believers. (laughs) I like the other common (laughs) denominator. It'd be nice that wasn't the case. But hey, there it is. And lest we miss the point, God gives us four examples of self-imposed sin-caused suffering that doesn't qualify for the previous things that he said about suffering. He starts off and he says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer. Okay, well there's sin-caused suffering can come because we committed murder. Uh, You know, there's consequences. Inescapable consequences, really. Legal, but also spiritual. For murder. By the way, to murder brings with it what the theologians describe as the burden of blood. Proverbs chapter 28 verse 17 says, If one is burdened with the blood of another, he'll be a fugitive until death, and let no one help him. Meaning, let no one spend their time trying to get rid of the guilt tied to the murder. A fugitive till death. Fugitive till death. Over these many years of ministry, as I've worked with different guys who've been in, even in warfare situations, the ones who struggled the most were ones not just in the warfare, but knowing in the face of it there were things that were being done that they even were parts of that no longer was just warfare. (laughs) And they suffered till they died with it. Didn't mean they weren't saved. It didn't mean in other ways God needed grace. But when I look at Proverbs chapter 28, 17, I say, there's things that can dog our step, even as redeemed children of God, over the long haul. I have a son that murdered his wife. One of my griefs. There's no escape on that aspect of it. The burden of guilt. Now, we might look at this and we say, well, it's only going to affect a small number of believers here, you know, relatively speaking. But let me read you. 1 John chapter 3, verse 15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer in the sight of God. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer in the sight of God. Which means there's blood guilt, in a way, that dogs our step over the long haul if we succumb to hate. 
That hate dogs our step, fosters bitterness. A bitterness that Hebrews 12 says becomes like a root of bitterness springing up, defiling all kinds of people. It's an inescapable deal. There's an answer to it in the sense of confessing it to the Lord and finding His grace not to act on the hate that's there. But So what's the point? If we brought it on ourselves, whether it's murder in verbal form or in physical form, there's no blessing in the action. It is a pointless suffering. Self-imposed. Useless. It's like the book of Ecclesiastes. All is meaningless. Vanity. Do you see the contrast? We can't escape suffering, but we can have some choice over the type of suffering (laughs) that we encounter in our life. Uh, God says, choose that which is not pointless. That which is not useless. That which serves the kingdom. You've spent enough time choosing the self-imposed, pointless stuff. He says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief. The Greek word kleptes, we get the word kleptomania from that, or a form of that in the English. It means to steal in secret. It's a word generally describing not a violent crime, but a crime nonetheless where somebody has been a thief, whether they've done it breaking into somebody's house, whether they've done it by cheating in business or taxes or whatever, it's all kleptes in the Greek. God doesn't differentiate for us between those things that impact on the hated, oppressing rulers and those things that don't. Uh, It's all kleptes. You think, well, I don't know if God takes it that serious. Well, I'd say he takes it serious because it was listed in the Ten Commandments that he laid out at the beginning. You shall not steal. And the Septuagint version of that Hebrew uses kleptes. You shall not steal. God says, that's not all you want you to do. God says you're going to suffer even if you get away with it, so to speak, in the context of your life. It is sin to be guilty of kleptes. In Romans chapter 13, he says in verses 9 and 10, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, kleptes, you shall not covet. Any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbors yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Kleptes is harming, not loving, a neighbor. And it doesn't matter the context in which kleptes occurs. God says there'll be suffering emerge from that. Whether legal suffering emerges or whether guilt in your life as a believer over the action persists. You cannot escape. You cannot escape suffering from kleptes. Even if you're not caught, you're crippled by guilt cut off from God's blessing. Such suffering self-imposed and pointless. There's the point again. It's like, well, this is a waste. A waste. He says also, let none of you be a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. Literally, lawbreaker. To be an evildoer in the Greek mind was somebody who just went around breaking the laws of the land. (laughs) There's consequences from being a lawbreaker. 
There's other ways to break the law than by being kleptes, being a thief. You know, you can break it in different ways. There's going to be consequences. And God says, even if you're not caught, there will be a crippling guilt for you as my child and a loss of my blessing, my makarios, in your life. There will be suffering that is pointless and self-imposed. And then he, even worse, he says, listen, uh, or as a meddler. I don't like having that included with the murder category, you know. But it is. The the word meddler here translates a Greek word which literally means to pry into the affairs of others. It's translated busybody by some translations and in other portions of the word. It describes the individual, talking believer now, the believer who sticks their nose into where it doesn't belong. Steps into situations where they're not wanted, they're not asked. Some people are so desperate to be part of stuff that I'm going to step into those situations because I don't want to be left out. I'm going to be sticking my nose in it because I want to be part of what's going on. And it's all justified in their minds. It's all meddling. God said, I want you to be meddling. Why? Don't be a meddler because there's suffering that emerges out of it that does not bring with it the grace of God. It does not bring with it makarios and a sense of the closeness with the Lord Jesus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11 says, But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more, and aspire to live quietly. Mind your own affairs. Ah. Yeah. God says that. Now, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 to 11, he says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness and are not busy at their work, but they are busybodies. Now, to such a person, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly, earn their own living, get your nose out of everybody else's business. That last phrase wasn't there, but that's what it meant, okay? Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. In First Peter, or I'm sorry, First Timothy chapter 5, uh, verse 13, it says, Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies. Here's the point. People don't appreciate meddlers. Even those who are supposedly meddling for your own best interest. Meddling because I'm just trying to serve the Lord and intervene. All such meddling is forbidden here. And all such meddling inevitably brings suffering with it. People say, I don't like it. I don't like you doing that. All such suffering is self-imposed suffering and pointless. It is not falling into the category of finding grace, koinonia with Christ. This sort of suffering is simply what you deserve to have happen. And he says, if anyone suffers as a believer, though, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. Suffering can either be a source of shame or true blessing. And it really comes down to why we're suffering. If we're suffering for the wrong reasons, 
It isn't a source of blessing in koinonia with Christ. It's pointless, and we suffer for no redemptive value. You mean there isn't help just in suffering? No, no, that's, that's, an, that's a human uh, axiom. <laughs> no one is helped by suffering per se. We're, suff- we're helped when we suffer for the right reason and in the right way. It says, let him not be ashamed if we suffer as a Christian. The word ashamed here translates a Greek word literally that means to be disfigured. When we are shamed by the world around us, their goal is to disfigure us in the eyes of other people, to mar us, to think of an artist's work, to mar it, to disfigure it. That's, that's what that's about. And God says, people keep trying to do that to you. Don't do it to yourself. Don't do it to yourself. There's plenty of people out there trying to do it. They don't need your help. But if you suffer for me, you will not be disfigured, even when that's the intention of those who are seeking to make you ashamed and to cast aspersions at you. He says, you won't get disfigured by it. You say, well, it still hurt, Lord. He says, well, yeah, but you're not disfigured by it. You're not disfigured. When we suffer for Christ... If that's why we're suffering, no shame is warranted ever. On a human level, in interaction with people, we can still feel some of that shame, I suppose, emotionally. But God says, don't let it disfigure you. Don't let it mar. Remember the Acts chapter 5? <laughs> they left the presence of the council and rejoiced they'd been counted worthy to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for the kingdom God says, doesn't have to disfigure you. It is going to hurt you. It doesn't have to disfigure you. When I feel dishonored and disgraced before people, and I've felt that way, sometimes because of my own choices, sometimes because of standing for Christ. When it's for Christ, it doesn't mean I should feel any shame before the Lord. Have you known that sort of suffering from family and friends, co-workers maybe, where you suffered for the kingdom? There's no shame before God suffering for the right reasons. It still hurts. That's why it's talking about here under suffering. But I can hurt and not be disfigured because of the enabling grace of the Holy Spirit in my life. That grace doesn't work so that I never get hurt. It works to make sure, though hurt, I'm not disfigured by the hurt. No need to hang my head red-faced before the Lord because some people shamed me. I don't need to come before the Lord and think, oh, if I only handled that witnessing opportunity differently, if I only said something different in that conversation Maybe I could have won them. Maybe I would have smoothed them from this to that. And then we begin to browbeat ourselves. And we need to remember Jesus always said everything right. Everything. His track record, if you measure it on a human level, wasn't great 
People were picking up stones to stone him, turn against him, reject his claims, accuse him of blasphemy, and on and on the list goes. You couldn't share effectively enough to avoid it. So when it happens, you don't beat yourself up. Go before the Lord and say, well, help me to learn. If there's something I need to learn from this, help me to learn it. (laughs) But I don't need to be embarrassed before you, Lord, because it happened. When we suffer for Christ, we can praise the Lord that, how's that phrase, that we bear that name. That's our great privilege for you and I. We bear that name. We don't deserve to bear that name, obviously, but we bear it. I bear the name of the Lord Jesus. You haven't always lived like it, Lord. Right, well, but I bear that name. He died for me. I, I repented, believed in him. I rested in his work on the cross. I'm seeking to grow as a disciple that I might please him. If it brings with it some of these things, I'll rejoice that I bear his name. Because people can bear a lot of different names. I want to bear that name. How about you? That's what I want to be known for. If they say, well, you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, they're guilty as charged. I wish there was even more evidence. You know, I wish there was even more evidence that that's who I am. That's where God wants us to be. Praising God that we're counted worthy for his sake to suffer because we bear that name. Do you see it as a reason to feel worthy? That takes a working of the Holy Spirit within our hearts. Next time, Lord willing, we'll try to finish this section. Look at verses 17 to 19. Look at some more about suffering as believers, but uh, no matter what I do when I'm teaching these things, before the Lord, I'm having lots of, let's walk to the woodshed situations where God has to say, now wait a second, you know, do you see this? Yeah, yeah, I see it. How's it worked out, Gary? Not always as good as I wish. And God says, all right, let's move ahead then. Let's do better. Let's focus on the right things. So if you ever feel beat up by these things, if you could see the spiritual beat up, (laughs) you'd say, hey, pastor was beat up too. I don't know if it's good company, but we're in the same company. (laughs) Beat up believers. But beat up for a purpose, moving in the direction of bearing his name more worthily than ever and seeking to grow in the face of what life brings our way. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for time together in this day, for your word, for these things about suffering. Uh, Encouraging words, hard words, but all words that you chose from eternity to breathe out. Help us to understand why and to rest in the truth of what you've said. And we'll thank you for that. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.